your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see. Working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. Ideas are brittle. If you had one shot, everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Now you fucking khakis. Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. In today's episode, I sit down with Stefan Guinet. He's a PhD. He studied neuroscience at the University of Washington. And then he went on to study neurosci- the neuroscience of obesity and eating behavior in his postdoctoral. Uh, he's done 12 years of neuroscience research. He's had his work has been cited almost 2,000 times by his peers. He uh, is a collaborator on the Human OS platform and a whole bunch of other stuff. And and one of the th- I heard I first heard uh, Stefan years ago on the Chris Cresser podcast, and um, it's been it's been something I've always wanted to do since then is to just sit down and, and have a conversation with him. And last year in 2017, he published a book called The Hungry Brain that got named one of the one of the best books of the year. And um, I wanted to have him on to kind of talk about some of the newest. Re- research and and what he's seen in the lab and how that applies to you know what we're doing here in the real world and um, how we can apply that in a way that's actionable to lose weight as easily and effortlessly as possible. So that's kind of what we dig into in this episode. Um, it's all about how the brain can determine our body weight and and the the things that uh, that that trigger cravings and how all of that essentially comes back to our brain and um, how we keep our brain healthy and optimal so that we're less uh, susceptible to those temptations. So um, if you guys dig the Biohacking Secrets show, best thing you can do is jump on iTunes, leave a five-star review. If you don't like it that much, feel free to pass on leaving a review. Um, but those reviews help more people like you check out our episodes and um, and take control of their health and and all of the good things that come from uh, just, being, just being tip-top in mind and body. And if you don't already have a copy of my book, The Biohacker's Guide to Upgraded Energy and Focus, we are giving that away at biohackersguide.com. We'll ship it anywhere in the world, just help out with the cost of shipping, and uh, we'll take care of the rest. So um, hope you guys enjoy this conversation and today's show with Stefan Guinet. Stefan Guinet, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. A lot of people who've struggled with their weight are going to enjoy some of the things that you have to share and some of what you've uncovered in your, in your latest research and, and put into your book, uh, The Hungry Brain, because it, it, it takes some of the responsibility off of us, at least, at least the people that beat themselves up and, and feel like they're lacking willpower and discipline. Um, what are you seeing in the scientific literature and what's what's modern science telling us about some of the reasons that we have a tendency to overeat and um, with so many people striving to be lean, why it's not happening more frequently for them, for us. Yeah. So, you know, I wouldn't say that willpower is not important at all. I think common sense suggests that it is a factor. Um, You know, some people are more, effective at modifying their impulses than other people are. Um, but at the same time, I mean, why do you need willpower? Why do you need willpower to begin with? Mm-hmm. That concept implies that there is some force arising from your non-conscious mind that you don't want to control your behavior, right? Like a craving or an impulse. 
Um, and so it's not just about the willpower. It's about that impulse. The impulse is really what's driving the whole thing. You have this impulse arising from non-conscious parts of the brain. That's very powerful. That's pushing you to eat too much or pushing you to eat food that you, that is not as healthy as you would like it to be. And then you're, you're in this situation where you have to oppose that with willpower. And I'm not going to say that willpower doesn't matter at all, but what I will say is that it's quite limited and it's, it's very, it varies between individuals. It's limited. And I think that if you design a strategy for your diet and lifestyle that relies very heavily on exerting willpower to say no, when you're in situations where you have strong temptations, that's generally going to be a failing strategy for most people. So I think the implication there is it, it's not that willpower doesn't matter at all, but it's definitely not all about willpower and, you know, failing to control your cravings, failing to control your eating behavior is not really a moral failure. That is kind of the normal state of affairs for human nature. I mean, uh, the brain's not really set up to have our conscious, rational reasoning, willpower exerting parts of the brain run the show all the time. The brain has these intuitive heuristics built in, the things that control our, you know, our appetite, our cravings, etc. And not just in food, but in everything. And those things are very powerful. They're, they're designed to kind of run on autopilot and keep you from doing stupid things. And, uh, in the time of our ancestors, that was really great because, you know, if a hunter gatherer 20,000 years ago decided, Hey, I think it's time for me to restrict my calorie intake. That would be a really, really dumb idea in that context. Yeah. Uh, and so Loin, have, loincloth is getting a little tight around the waist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would be a terrible idea because there wasn't obesity. There's very, very little possibly you know, very, very little obesity, very little overweight, like excess body fatness was just not a threat in that context. And so it doesn't make sense. And so you have these brain regions that are not really going to let you do it, or at least they're going to put up a really good fight if you try to. And so, uh, and we still have those brain regions. So essentially what's happening in the modern world is we have these non-conscious brain regions. And by the way, the the brain has many, many processes. This is not intuitive to people because, because of the fact that we don't have conscious access to these brain processes. But there are many things in the brain that are non-conscious. And some easy examples, they're part of the brain, there are parts of the brain that regulate your breathing, parts of your brain that regulate your heartbeat, parts of your brain that regulate what's going on in your digestive tract. There's all kinds of things happening down there that you're not aware of even in the slightest, or maybe you might be slightly aware of, but not very highly aware of. And so um, we have all these things that were kind of built up by natural selection in our brains to kind of like run things behind the scenes. And uh, those things were designed for a particular evolutionary context that we are no longer in. And part mm -hmm. of that context is food being more difficult to obtain than it is today. And frankly, just not as exciting to the palate as it is today. And so when you, when you put those brain systems in the context of a modern environment where we have really abundant, really delicious food that has the physical and chemical properties that the brain is hardwired to seek 
then you're, you're creating a situation where these non-conscious brain regions that are very powerful, very influential, generating your hunger and your cravings and things like that are, you know, I'm not going to say they're 100% in control of the show, but they are very, they're mostly in control of the show and they are pushing you strongly in a certain direction that's very hard to resist. And it's not a failing, in my view, it's not a failing to not be able to resist those things. That's just how the human brain is set up. Like we're not, we're not all going to be heroes. We're not all going to be Superman. We're just people and our brains are set up in a certain way that makes it very difficult to control our food intake in a healthy direction in the modern environment. Mm -hmm. And so I guess there's a lot of theories out there ranging from, I'll, I'll rattle off a few, um, the, the, in terms of like what contributes to the obesity epidemic or just difficulty losing weight in, in any capacity. You know, you, we hear insulin resistance, we hear leptin resistance, neurotransmitter imbalances, um, gut issues, infections, if that's independent of gut issues, whether we're talking about like candida or parasites or things that may trigger cravings, thyroid problems, sedentary lifestyle, the engineered foods that you mentioned a little bit earlier where, you know, we're taking foods and we're putting a lot of um, carbohydrates or sugars and, and, and fats together and our brain's going, oh, this is awesome. What do you feel like, what do you feel like is the driving cause of everything like what's if we if we really try to get down to the root cause level what's what's the primary root cause and what are some of the secondary things that spin off from it and it doesn't have to be from that list i gave you i'm just curious yeah, what you're yeah. seeing i mean i think uh a lot of those things are contributing and um obesity depending on what level you look at it, what level of analysis can be very simple or very complex. So I'll start with the simple and then we can work our way up to more complex. Uh, the simple is that obesity is an excess of fat mass and fat is an energy storage tissue. And how does an energy storage tissue come to contain so much energy? It's that you have more energy entering the body than you have leaving the body. So there's an energy imbalance this is, I don't know, it's like in some internet circles, this seems controversial, but it's really not at all controversial from a scientific perspective, from uh, simple thermodynamics and many, many studies that have been done. When calories in exceeds calories out, it tends to accumulate in your fat tissue. That's really not controversial. Um, so on that level of analysis, it's very simple. We're, we're just eating more calories than we're expending. But then when you start to ask why we're doing that, mm -hmm. then that becomes a more difficult or more complex question, I will say, complex and difficult. So, um, and I think there are a lot of reasons why we are eating more calories than we require to maintain a lean weight. Um, I think changes in our food environment are very critical to that. So both the quality of the food we're eating in terms of its physical and chemical composition. Um, in addition to how accessible it is to us and how inexpensive it is, it's very, very convenient. It's very, very cheap. Um, it's everywhere. It requires very little effort to obtain. Um, and, and, you know, people like to complain about the cost of food, but the truth is that in the modern United States, Food is cheaper than it's ever been 
in all of human history. Um, by, by a long shot. I mean, people just as recently as 80 years ago were spending a quarter of their disposable income on food. Come on. Yeah. And so we're spending about 10% today. So it's, it, we're spending very, very little money on food compared to historical norms. And of course, hunter gatherers didn't pay money for food, but if you factor in the work that they did for food, it was also very expensive by modern standards. Yeah. Um, and so you have this massive change in the food environment in the quality of the food that we're eating. And we can, we could dig into either of those more if you want. Um, we have an environment we ha- where we have mechanized most of our physical activity requirements. So if you, if you really th- like think about all the things that the typical person would have had to do hundred years ago or 150 years ago, um, a lot of them were rather physically active. I mean, they didn't have automobiles. Most people didn't have automobiles. So you had to walk or ride a horse to get around. Um, we didn't have washing machines and dishwashers. Most of the cooking was done from single ingredients in the home. People were tending their gardens, planting crops, milking cows, working in factories. Life itself was physical activity. And so, um, on the energy outside of the equation, you had more, more calories leaving. And I think all of this kind of has a complex uh, interplay intersection with those circuits in the brain that regulate body fatness. So we don't know exactly how this happens, but when you expose animals or humans to calorie dense, highly palatable processed foods, what you see is that the circuits in the brain that regulate body fatness, and we could go into more depth on that if you want, uh, those actually start defending a higher level of body fatness. So they actually begin actively trying to defend higher body fatness against fat loss. And we're not sure exactly how that happens, but we know the kind of situation in which it does happen. And it's being surrounded. It's, it's the modern American experience. It's being surrounded by junk food and not having to do much physical activity. We know that that causes those types of changes in the brain. So that's kind of a, a landscape of the types of things that I think are making major contributions. And there are probably a lot of others that I didn't mention. Um, in fact, I'm certain there are a lot of others that I didn't mention, but some, those are some of the big ones, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I'm curious, what what's your take, or is this even something that, that you've considered? Um, because it is a little bit newer with, um, with, with some of the research that's come out in the past year. Do you feel that the ubiquitous nature of like cell phones and Wi-Fi and smart meters, and, and now that we know that they, you know, they flood the cells through the voltage-gated calcium channels with with calcium ions, free radicals, reactive oxygen species. And we know that our cells a lot of times are, and then the mitochondria specifically are helping to metabolize our food. Have you like, what are your thoughts on the possibility that we're actually jacking up our own metabolism by changing our, our energetic environment? Or is that, or, or do you, do you stay more on the biochemistry side of things right now? So you mean via electromagnetic radiation emitting from devices? Yeah, yeah. Some of the you know the the, the work that's been published by Dr. Martin Paul. Um, it was it was the summer of 
2017, showing that this microwave radiation, um, this RF radio frequency, um, magnetic fields can flood the cells with with calcium ions, and they act as if if there's too many of them, which is what happens. Um, they act as an intracellular free radical and um, can affect the way the mitochondria work and everything. And and we know we're putting a ton of junk in our food. Um, is that is that one of the potential variables that you've looked at or um or not really uh so no it's not and you know this is not something i have i'm i'm really aware of um so i can't really speak to it knowledgeably but i will say on first principles i'm pretty skeptical of uh the electromagnetic radiation explanation that you just outlined and the reason is that, um, well, first of all, I'd have to see what the dose is and whether it's relevant to the amount that we're receiving in a you know typical uh, home environment. But the second thing is that calcium, calcium entering, uh, calcium being released inside cells is a major signaling mechanism of neurons. That's uh, something that impacts. Um, neurotransmitter release and transcription in, in neurons. It's one of the main uh, intracellular signaling mechanisms. And if you're getting major amounts of calcium release from EMF or yeah, from electromagnetic radiation from your cell phone or whatever, I mean, your brain would be going haywire. Uh, you would not, I don't think you would be able to have form coherent thoughts and have your brain work normally if you were getting all kinds of uh, inappropriate calcium release. Sure, sure. Um, you've done you've done some cool things in your own life that have like made some of these things you described, or I guess taken a modern lifestyle and added some of these um, habits that were more common a hundred years ago. You you grow a lot of your own food. You bicycle around, uh, you brew hard cider. Um, what are some of the things like that since, since writing and researching for the hungry brain and, and even since then, what are some other things that you've integrated into your own daily or weekly habits to mitigate some of these things that we have working against us? Yeah, that's a good question. And I mean, this, this really gets to, I think the heart of the question of, uh, or the topic of ancestral health. I mean, we know that our ancestors in some ways were much healthier than we are today, our distant ancestors, in terms of their chronic disease risk and their body fatness. Not saying that they were healthier in every way, but in some ways they were. Uh, and we know that that is caused by a change in environment. It's caused by the way we live today. That's creating excess body fat mass, it's creating diabetes, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. Those things are diseases of the environment. And um, so the question is, what exactly are the environmental changes that have driven that and what can we do about it? Can we selectively adopt some of the things that our ancestors used to do and perhaps um, get some of the benefits that they had? Maybe we can get all the benefits of today, like vaccines and sanitation, et cetera, and also have all the benefits that they had, like 
protection from obesity and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And so, you know, I, I don't try to emulate what my distant ancestors did. Uh, you know, I, I like a lot of the things about the modern world. I'm not trying to reenact, but what I am trying to do is bring certain principles back into my life um, from that time and work them into my life in a way that works for me, but also enhances my health and my maintains my leanness and enhances my psychological well-being too. Um, so you mentioned a few things that I do. I try to work physical activity into my daily life. And, you know, the typical approach would be to say, like, go to the gym a few times a week. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I'm not at all criticizing that approach, but the more ancestrally inspired way would be to build physical activity into your daily activities. So mm -hmm. for example, do active commuting or if you need to go shopping, walk to the grocery store, even though you could jump in your car and drive. So you're building it into your everyday activities in a way that it feels uh, natural and productive instead of like you're having to schedule time to do some other thing that you know is good for you. So yeah. it's, it's a mindset and it's a way of doing it more sustainably that I think um, can be beneficial. I find it beneficial. Another thing I do is I really focus on controlling my food environment so that I'm not in an wow. environment that's constantly pushing me to eat more food. Yes. Um, yeah. So I think this is a really important problem with the modern food environment uh, problem for people who are trying to limit their body weight, struggling with excess weight, is that we're constantly pushed by food all around us in our kitchen, at work, when we're in a public place. We're constantly pushed toward eating more food, not toward eating less food. And that's because of the easy availability of very seductive foods. So just as an example, you know, if you have an open bag of potato chips or a plate of cookies or uh, a six pack of soda on your counter in your kitchen, or even worse on your desk where you work, um, you're going to be much more likely to eat those things than if they were in some cupboard somewhere where you couldn't see them or even better if you had to actually go to the grocery store to get those items, if they weren't anywhere in your proximal environment. Mm -hmm. And so this is, you know, this is a feature of the ancestral environment. A hunter gatherer didn't just have tons of awesome food laying around in camp. Otherwise they wouldn't be hunting and gathering. They'd just be eating the food they had there. When a hunter gatherer wants food, he or she goes and gets it. The food is not right there. They have to go and work to get that thing. And the food that they obtain is not necessarily that seductive. Hunter-gatherers, they weren't sauteing onions. They weren't, you know, pulling out a bottle of olive oil and putting it all over everything. They didn't usually have salt. Uh, they didn't have a bunch of herbs and spices, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. They didn't have sugar. So they, they weren't able to cater as effectively to the, to the desires of their own palates as we are today. And so, um, anyway, all this is to say that my, if you go into my kitchen, my food environment, there's very little visible food at all. And the food that there is requires a little bit of effort. So I create small effort barriers for myself. For example, uh, I have oranges that you would have to peel to eat. 
There are peanuts <laughs> that you would have to shell to eat and they're unsalted. So they're, they taste good, but not great. And there's uh, raw almonds with uh, a screw, screw top jar. So I would have to unscrew that and go for the almonds. They're unsalted raw almonds. So again, they taste good, but not great. Um, and so all of those things together, that kind of a food environment, then there's nothing else I can eat in my house without actually preparing it. That is, that is my only options. So for a snack, I mean, if I'm, so if I'm genuinely hungry, I can go and eat those things. Um, and that's good. I want to be able to have food that I can eat if I'm genuinely hungry, but if I'm not truly hungry, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go through the work of walking into the kitchen and peeling an orange if I don't actually really want an orange. So, um, have you always had that level of self-awareness where you're like, am I hungry? Do I really want an orange or am I bored? Or is it something that you've developed? Cause it's, that's a skill set in and of itself to be aware of like what's driving our feeding behaviors. You know, I don't, I don't really try that hard to parse it out for myself. I just try to create a scenario that naturally leads my eating behaviors to conform with my goals. Yeah. So I don't, I don't really worry that much about, is this really hunger? Or is this really boredom? As long as my eating behavior is where I want it to be, I don't worry about it that much. But generally, I mean, I have some level of awareness. Yeah. Like if I'm headed for an orange or headed for the peanuts, I can stop myself and say, do I actually feel hungry or am I bored? But generally, I actually do feel hungry. Boredom is just not enough of a stimulus for me to eat a not very exciting food that I have to work for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, it, it's, it's funny how we respond to stress and things like that and how different emotions affect people differently. Um, and sometimes we're aware of it and sometimes we're not. Like I posted a picture in, I think it was like November or late October, early November. And I was going through, um, a challenging period with my girlfriend, we'd moved to Florida together. And, um, and I knew that we, you know, we weren't the, the, the perfect fit. Um, and we needed to break up and it was stressing me out, but like, I didn't know how to tell her and we're going through Costco and we picked up one of those, like, <laughs> I don't know. It was like a bed frame size tray of Ferrero Rocher's those, <laughs> and I crushed like half of it. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I posted to, our group of consulting clients, you know, just showing like, Hey, sometimes we all go a little bit off the rails and some of the women in the group, um, reached out independently and they're like, are you okay? Mm. And they just immediately knew from seeing what, what's typically eaten. And then, and then me just yeah. going off the rails with that, yeah. that something was going on. And, yeah. um, and it hadn't even crossed my mind. I was like, Oh my gosh, maybe that, maybe I am stressed out from this and I'm like eating my emotions. I mean, that's, yeah. that's good. It's not a challenge that, that you've dealt with. Um, did you ever go off the rails? Was it like, I can't have all this stuff in the house or I eat it. Um, or have you kind of always been pretty dialed in? Oh yeah. I mean, I, you know, I have definitely gone to places that I don't think are that healthy. And, you know, I still do every now and then I, and honestly, I don't worry about it that much if it's only occasional. Mm -hmm. Um, for example, like I, I'm not a drill sergeant with myself. If I, if I'm in a situation where people are eating pizza, as long as my overall eating habits are where I want them to be, which is like 
usually, you know, 90% whole foods cooked from single ingredients and healthy food environment. If I'm, you know, if I stuff myself on pizza one night, I'm not going to worry about it. Um, but I, I do, I try to understand it. I try to understand where it's coming from and I try to create conditions that limit how often that happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, this gets to a topic that I cover in the book also, which is the impact of stress on eating behavior yeah. and stress can have a very profound impact in eating behavior. Um, it depends on who you are. Some people stress overeat, some people actually stress under eat. So it's, it's very individual. Um, and it's also to some extent linked to sex. So, uh, both men and women can stress overeat, but it's more common among women. And, um, basically there's, there's two reasons that we think that happens. One of them is that the stress cortisol, stress hormone cortisol actually acts in some of the brain regions that regulate your appetite and body fatness and kind of dampen those, uh, feedback signals that tell your brain it has enough energy. So it's interfering with the signaling pathways in your brain that are saying, okay, we're cool. We have enough fat. We have enough food and which makes you hungrier, makes you put on fat. So, and, and I want to say, I, I want to clarify that this is not a hundred percent airtight story. What I just said, uh, it's what I think is probably true, but I would like to see more research on it. Um, I wouldn't call it airtight. And, um, but another thing that I think is, is better established and I think lines up very well with people's, um, anecdotal experience, such as what you're talking about is that we use food to self-medicate our stress. And this is very common where even if you have someone who's not overeating calories when they're stressed, they may switch to, or, or let's say they're not like binging when they're stressed they may switch to a pattern that focuses more on comfort foods. And these are calorie dense refined foods. And you might eat more calories of those without having to go on a binge just because they're very calorie dense. And so, um, at least they tend to be. And so, um, or you might do both. You might binge on comfort foods. And I think that's pretty common too. So, and, and the reason is that these foods literally dampen the activity of stress circuits in the brain. So if you look in the amygdala, which is a brain region that is really a, a key region for stress, uh, for, for generating stress, um, you see that the activity of those stress generating circuits are actually dampened when you uh, have access to comfort food. And by the way, this is research that's been done in animals. They haven't actually sliced open human brains to see this, but I was, I was just thinking as you were telling them, like, how are they doing this? Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is in rodents. Um, but yeah, you, when you give rodents, um, like sugar water, for example, or lots of fat, if you get, if, when you give them things they like, basically even sex, this, it works for sex too. Um, you, you see that those circuits in the brain, those stress circuits are dampened. So you see less activity in them. And, and any marker you want to look at, whether it's physiological, your blood pressure or whatever, or the activity of these circuits, your cortisol level, in, in rodents at least, you see that those things are dampened. And I think this correlates really well to our subjective experience of 
wanting to eat food, certain foods when we're stressed and feeling comforted when we do. But I think one, one of the things that's really important about this is it shows that it's not just food that can do this. Sex also works and probably anything that you like that makes you feel good can actually substitute for food. Sex and, but, sex and food are the big two, right? Exactly. That, this is the problem is that there's not a whole lot that can compete with food. Food is such a big deal to the brain. Uh, sex is one that can compete with food. Um, and then there are other things that maybe aren't as effective, but could still have some impact like taking a hot bath or going for a walk or calling a friend or something like that. Maybe you could get you part of the way there far enough along that you're, you don't feel the need to really eat those kinds of foods anymore. Yeah, it's, it, this is also like my experience has also been more anecdotal and, and something I've observed, but it does seem like whether the pathway is, um, you know, due to an imbalance in our lifestyle, we're spending more time indoors and we're eating, we're eating high, high sugar, high sweetened foods, um, high carbohydrate foods that spike serotonin. And then we get a, a crash afterwards, or it's just because, as you mentioned, we're more stressed and that cortisol's uh, affecting the amygdala and parts of the brain that, um, that are also involved with, um, with hunger it, it does seem like there's more and more cases of imbalances in the brain. Um, people who are generally feeling, it, it seems like there's more abundance than ever and more opportunity than ever. And on paper, if you look at the, the digital world that we've created, we're more connected than ever. And yet we're unhappier than we've ever been. And I, and I'm wondering how much of that is we're, we're medicating with food, and it's 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 these it's it's these chemical imbalances that are driving us that direction. Yeah, I mean, I think the the big picture concept to me is that there are going to be a lot of imbalances that are created the further we go from the evolutionary context in which the human brain and body evolved. So um, these are called evolutionary mismatch disorders. I mean, basically, we have so many systems in our body, so many little details that were designed for a context that we're not in anymore. And the further we get away from that context, our bodies aren't adapting. We're adapting culturally to some degree, but that can't make up for the fact that our bodies are not are, are not fundamentally wired, are not fundamentally constructed for the modern environment, the further we get away from the ancestral environment, the more of these imbalances we're going to encounter, whether that is, um, whether they are caused by our diet that's changing further and further away from ancestral, whether that's caused by our light exposure that's changing, whether it's caused by our social environment, our immune environment, um, all of those things and many more and things we probably can't even imagine yet have the potential to cause problems for us. So I think we're seeing a failure in many domains of our bodies and brains as in, in ways that some ways that we probably can't even understand yet as we go further and further away from the ancestral environment. And, and by the way, I don't, I don't want to paint too gloomy of a picture, you know, like, 
hunter gatherers experienced infant mortality levels of like 30%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, an infectious disease, accidents, warfare, uh, were much greater threats, even predation were much greater threats than today. So like, if you want to talk about, you know, first world problems, I think we could talk about some of these things, but, um, so I just want to put it in perspective, but you know, that said, like, they're not necessarily insignificant problems. You know, depression is a huge, I I've come to believe is, is a huge problem in the modern world. Um, maybe even things that don't qualify as depression, but are just kind of general social malaise from Mm -hmm. the weirdness of the social media environment. Uh, it's so, it's so weird going out now and you see the, you see young girls posing for picture after picture after picture. And it's like, it's like we're living in the Truman show or something. Yeah, it's yeah. And there is growing evidence that it's, it's not so good for us, but Um, I don't know if we have a smoking gun yet, but it certainly makes sense to me. Um, yeah. And then, you know, we have all these immune problems that are arising. So we have these really high rates of autoimmune diseases and inflammatory diseases and allergic diseases. Mm -hmm. And these are things, these are literally dysfunction of the immune system. The three things I just listed are different types of immune dysfunction where the immune system is basically going off for no reason it's it's like deciding to attack something that's inappropriate and so that's really weird right i mean why would your own immune system do something that is damaging to you when it designed to protect you against things from the outside or to help heal your body when you injure yourself so Um, would an example of that be like hashimoto's yeah, that's an example of an autoimmune disease. Type 1 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis uh, are also common and, and uh, can be devastating examples of it. Um, and these, these are things that you see very low rates of in non-industrialized societies. And I don't think that those disorders were common at all for our distant ancestors based on the evidence that I see. Same with like inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's, um, and uh, ulcerative colitis, mm, yeah. and and as I said, multiple sclerosis, which is a degenerative brain disease. So these things, uh, I think, probably relate very strongly to our the exposures that our immune system relate uh, receive when we're young. So this is the hygiene hypothesis, the idea that we're not being exposed to uh, both symbiotic organisms such as complex uh, and diverse microbiota and as well as harmful pathogens like intestinal worms and uh, infectious diseases, uh, viruses and, and bacteria that are potentially harmful but may actually have some side benefits in terms of training our immune system to behave itself. I like that you call them intestinal worms as well, which has less of a negative connotation than than referring to them as parasites, which kind of assumes that we know everything they do in our body, good and bad. Yeah, that's right. Um, Was that intentional? (laughs) uh, Not really, but I do agree with with, uh, how you interpreted it. Um, And, 
you know, so I, I've actually been doing a lot of work on um, helminths is, is what you call parasitic worms, whether they're in the intestine or other parts of the body. Um, I've been doing a lot of work on this lately for an organization called GiveWell. And um, they, and um, basically most of these, most of these helminths, particularly the intestinal ones, unless you have a really severe infection, it doesn't actually seem to be that harmful. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really affect your growth, barely affects your growth. It, if at all, it doesn't affect your hemoglobin levels. Um, the level of serious complications are really, really rare. So unless you have like a really heavy infection, these uh, intestinal worms, these helminths really don't seem to harm, to have that much harm. And uh, they may have some benefits. Um, and so, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, in animal models, and, you know, just to, just to give you a little bit more context here, in animal models, helminths, as well as a variety of other things that are considered pathogens, like bacterial and viral infectious diseases, can strongly protect against autoimmune, inflammatory, and... Uh, allergic diseases. And so with really, really powerful effects. And so I think that, um, there's probably something to this hypothesis. Is the word you're using Hellman's? Helminth. Helminth. Yeah. What are some of the benefits that you've seen? Uh, protection from those immune diseases that I was talking about. That's the primary things that have been studied. Um, there's a little bit of research suggesting that they might be protective against cardiovascular disease and diabetes, maybe even obesity, but, um, that I haven't really looked into very deep and it seems like it's less, it's, it's not as far along as the, uh, research on immune, uh, immune diseases because the immune thing is, is very obvious because we have an entire branch of our immune system called TH2 immunity that is dedicated, that evolved to fight helmets. And so um, they manipulate, and that's also the branch that's involved in allergic, inflammatory, and autoimmune diseases. And so worms basically manipulate that part of our immune system in order to induce tolerance to be able to hang out and make eggs. And uh, so that's a pretty obvious hypothesis that's received a lot of attention. That's, that's interesting. What else? So for someone listening, they know they, they've had a hard time cutting back on carbs or maybe transitioning to, um, to fat as, as their primary fuel source. Um, or, you know, there's exercise intolerance or just really, really bad cravings where they find themselves drawn towards foods they know they shouldn't be eating. What are some of the, what are some of the first steps you recommend people taking, you talked about creating a clean food environment. And like, I couldn't agree more. If I have bad stuff in the house, I just eat it. I'm like, I'm like a wild animal. At some point I'm going to be, I'm going to lose focus and discipline. I'm going to be stressed and I'll end up eating it. So I'm like, I just can't keep it in the house. And then when I don't, it's out of sight, out of mind. What are some other things that people in that position where they know their body, their metabolism isn't, isn't working optimally. Their brain is probably experiencing some of these things that, that you discuss in, um, in the hungry brain. And, uh, what can they do to start getting out of this vicious cycle? 
Yeah. So I think the, you mentioned the food environment. I think that would be the first and most obvious and easiest step is just get stuff out of the house. And, you know, you alluded to a really key thing that happens when you do that. And that is not only does it make it more difficult to eat the foods that you don't want to eat, but it actually makes you crave them less. So when your brain knows not on a non-conscious level that eating ice cream is not a possibility, it's not even there, it doesn't generate the craving for it. Mm-hmm. Because, or at least it's a lot less likely to generate the craving, I should say. Um, because those cravings arise when your brain receives cues that predict the availability of those things that it likes. That's what triggers the craving. And so, um, yeah, so the food environment is really, really key. Another thing that I think is key is controlling the seductiveness of your food. And that's kind of, uh, the word seductiveness is kind of, a. uh, more intuitive lay version of this term that I use called food reward. And that's like the motivational value and the pleasure value and the implicit learning value of food to your brain. And, um, when, you know, when there are foods that we crave a lot, the, you know, limiting them is an obvious, uh, is an obvious solution. But one of the things to understand about the reward system in the brain is that it forgets just the same as every other system in your brain forgets, including the one that is supposed to keep track of where your keys are. Um, the reward system forgets those cravings over time. And so if you don't eat that ice cream, if you don't eat the pizza or the cookies or the bacon or whatever it is for a long period of time, gradually your cravings will diminish and their power over your brain will diminish. And this, this is the same way how, you know, I'm sure for those who have quit smoking, they'll know how this works. Or if you know someone who's quit smoking, um, at first, a person who's quit smoking experiences really, really strong cravings. That craving is really, really salient, and it's going to be really hard for them to resist having a cigarette if they're around someone who's smoking or if they walk into the convenience store that has the cigarettes that they usually buy or if they're at a bar and people are mm-hmm. smoking, etc. Those are the cues that are driving the craving and the reward system. But over time, the longer they abstain, the less powerful those become. And then after a year has gone by, after two years have gone by, they can be around people who are smoking. They can go into that convenience store and not experience an overwhelming craving, possibly not even experience a craving at all. I know, I know people who they don't smoke for a year and all of a sudden they're like, wow, this smells really disgusting. I don't know how I ever did this. (laughs) And that's, that's just a 180 reversal. Um, and, and what's happening inside the brain is, is the brain literally re rewiring the, the pleasure centers? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it does imply that the circuits that are driving that particular behavior are weakening over time. Those connections are weakening. I don't know exactly what the mechanism is on a, on a synapse or neurotransmitter level. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. If that, I mean, if, if, if that research is even possible in, in humans, but to kind of look at what, what are some of the underlying mechanisms, do you think there's validity to some of these 
cravings being triggered by it's like we have a tendency to crave foods that um, have an allergic response in the body, the peanut butters and eggs, some of those more common food allergens, um, the breads, grains. So I've heard that before and I'm highly skeptical. Um, I would like to see some evidence supporting that. I've not seen any evidence supporting that besides just kind of speculations and anecdotes. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, the default hypothesis to explain any craving is that a food has a particular chemical and physical composition that the brain is hardwired to like. And so the brain is hardwired to like things that have, that are dense in carbohydrate, fat, protein, salt, and glutamate, which is that meaty umami flavor. And so if you look at the things people typically crave, peanut butter is an incredibly calorie-dense food. It's got tons of fat. It's got tons of salt. It's got a fair amount of protein. So, I mean, the what we know about how reward works, about how regular cravings work, explains that perfectly well without having to invoke allergies. Uh, any baked good, any flour-based baked good is, is going to be very calorie-dense is going to be high in, uh, if it's a savory baked good, it'll probably be high in salt, <clears throat> very high in starch. Um, and if it's a sweet baked good, it'll often be high in fat and sugar as well. And those are some of the most calorie dense um, foods that we have in our diet. Those are some of the most seductive foods, whether you're allergic to it or not. And so, Again, I think you don't need to invoke allergies to explain things like that. Now, if you showed me someone who was addicted to carrots and they were allergic to <laughs> carrots or like plain lentils with nothing on them or like plain boiled potatoes, then I would say, okay, yeah, maybe there's something to this. But if you show me someone who's addicted to cookies and they think it's an allergy is ca causing that, I'm going to say there's another hypothesis that explains this more simply yeah I, that, that makes sense um what's in your what's in your fridge right now or like what have you eaten today so generally my breakfast is oatmeal with homemade whole milk plain yogurt and berries so i freeze berries over the course of the season and then i pull them back out and put them in my oatmeal in the morning so this morning i had raspberries um, so it's, it's literally just plain oatmeal, plain whole milk yogurt, plain berries together. Uh, I drank a little bit of tea, very, very weak tea. I've been kind of getting away from caffeine lately. What inspired you to do that? You know, <clears throat> I, it, ironically, I found myself having these early afternoon and mid afternoon slumps where you know, the, the work that I do is very cognitively demanding. And so I, I can't afford to have my brain not work firing on all cylinders at certain times a day. Mm -hmm. And so I was having these slumps and it was really frustrating. And I was, I was having to drink tea to kind of get myself out of that. And at some point I, I wondered, well, could that slump be because I'm drinking tea in the morning and then I'm coming off of that tea in the afternoon? Uh -huh. 
And so I decided to cut back on my caffeine. And so now I'm, I'm drinking like homeopathic quantities of, of caffeine in the morning. And, uh, and I don't have the slump anymore. So that's what inspired it and seems to be working. Is, is your overall cognition as sharp as it was if you dosed with some caffeinated tea in the morning? I haven't noticed any difference. I mean, I haven't done any really, I haven't done any really uh, sensitive comparisons. I haven't like tested myself in some quantitative way, but I haven't noticed any difference. Nice. I, I, I had a similar experience with, uh, with espresso. And it was okay. like in the morning I was doing cafe Americanos. So we do, you know, there'd be two shots of espresso and some water and then, and same thing in the afternoon. And I, I was like, I wondered, I'm like, am I basically just, just yinning and yanging? I'm trading a little bit of a boost now for a little bit of a dip later. And oddly enough, when I cut them out, it was much more consistent. Um, yeah. Yeah. It that's, was, it, that's what I've experienced too. Yeah. That's cool. Um, what about someone who's listening? They're like, I know I need to clean up my food environment. I'm on board, but I've got a significant other kids. I'm not the only one making the food decisions for this household. Have you been asked that before? Or like, how do you recommend people approach that conversation? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is really difficult. It's, you know, there's, at home, you have to think about your family's preferences. And then at work, you have to think about your coworkers' preferences. And, you know, I think work can actually be one of the worst situations because you have people often in an office environment bringing in donuts or cookies or whatever, and they're trying to do something nice for people. You know, they're trying to be kind and share something that makes people feel good, be affectionate. And, but the truth is that from, you know, weight and health perspective, that is really, really harmful. That's creating a really, really harmful food environment for others in the workplace. Um, so I think it's a tough situation and I think there are different ways to navigate it. But what I would recommend is first of all, like, you know, not really getting into a confrontation with people, but asking for their help. So, um, instead of demanding that people change, you set, you explain to them what you're trying to do, that you're, you know, trying to control your weight, you're trying to be healthier. And then you ask them to help you do that by making certain changes. And, uh, you know, either not having those types of foods available in your home or work environment, or if you can't agree to not have them available, then you can make smaller changes like um, putting them out of sight. So you'd say, okay, well, you're not willing to get rid of the cookies, but let's put them in the cabinet where I'm not, where I don't have to look at them on the counter all the time. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's take the, you know, bowl of nuts or the bowl of candy or whatever, and let's put it in a screw top jar in the cabinet so that there's a little effort barrier. What can we do to reduce the sensory cues that those things are producing for, for the parts of my brain that are generating cravings? And what can we do to create effort barriers that are going to make me think twice before I eat those things? So those are some kind of like partial measures you can take. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm in 
the situation, which, you know, could be viewed as enviable where I cook almost all the food in our house. I do a lot of the shopping and my wife is on board with, with the way I do it. Um, so I have, you must be a decent chef then. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I, I think I'm a decent chef, but I mean, I think my wife also doesn't demand that her palate always be entertained to the max with every bite. (laughs) You know, same as me. And I think we have that expectation in the modern world. It's intuitively, it's intuitively appealing. Like, why would you not give yourself pleasure from food when you could be doing it? Uh, And, and the reason not to is because when you do that, often it's going to be food that's going to make you eat more or uh, is unhealthy in other ways. But we don't think, we don't think about that intuitively. The brain's just like, that tastes good. I want that. For sure. And if you go back to your example earlier, if like if, if sex and food are the two primary ways we satisfy this and, you know, let's say someone's not having a lot of sex and you're like, yeah, you need to stop eating that food you like too. They're like, oh, what do I, what do I live for? Yeah, it's a tough problem. It's a tough problem. I mean, I think we have come to rely to a large extent on food for our pleasure and satisfaction. Um, but I would, I would just say that, you know, it's, it has costs. Yeah, for sure. What what was it that made you write the hungry brain? So I had been interested in health and nutrition for a long time. I've kind of always been interested in health and nutrition and, uh, also always interested in the brain, but as a separate interest, And essentially, uh, for my postdoctoral research at the University of Washington with Mike Schwartz, I brought those two things together by studying the neuroscience of body fatness. The brain turns out to be really key in regulating body fatness. In fact, the brain is the only structure that is actually known to regulate body fatness. Um, And the um, basically... It, it just dawned on me that two things dawned on me. First of all, that we were studying the right organ. Not only does the brain regulate body fatness, but the brain is the organ that generates all of your behaviors, including all of your eating behaviors. So what you choose to eat, how much you choose to eat. Um, and it also generates your physical activity behaviors, how you move your body. It generates your cravings. It generates your desires and your impulses. It generates your hunger, your fullness. All of those things are generated by the brain. This is, you know, an obvious conclusion, but it's not really a frame of reference that most people take when they're thinking about their eating behavior and body fatness. And so uh, I wanted to, and, and also, by the way, it's a frame that was kind of difficult to take in a very informative way until relatively recently because we didn't really have the neuroscience knowledge yet to be able to make that a useful frame uh, to take. But we do now. We have a huge amount of information about how brain circuits determine our cravings and our hunger and our body fatness and our eating behaviors. And so I wanted to write a book that was written in that frame explaining uh, why we overeat and why we gain fat from the frame of those brain circuits. And there's not any other book that's ever attempted to really take that frame in an explicit way. 
And, and that to me seems kind of extraordinary given that the brain is, you know, is the central player in all of these things we care about that no one had ever written a book about it uh, was pretty extraordinary. So, so that, that's what brought me there. And that's what I decided to do. I wanted to share all this information with people who didn't necessarily have a scientific background in these areas. Um, I wanted to help them to understand what's going on in their own heads. And I think it succeeded in doing that. Um, judging by the feedback. And I wanted it also to, you know, via under, via greater understanding, provide people with a way to start doing something about it, to control their own eating behavior, their own health and their own weight in a more effective and sustainable manner. Very cool. And, uh, congratulations on winning, you know, one of the best books of the year from publishers weekly. That's a, that, that's a, a pretty cool honor to have bestowed upon you. Thank you. Um, well, this is great, Stefan, I'm going to, we're going to link to the hungry, hungry brain in the show notes for people that want to stay up to date with research. You're doing upcoming books and projects and things you're working on. What's the best way for them to do that? So I have a website at stephanguiana.com. Um, if you don't want to have to spell my name, you can get there through wholehealthsource.org. Um, so I talk about some of the stuff that I'm up to and I, I write articles on there. I'm also fairly active on Twitter and my Twitter handle is at WH source at WH source for Twitter, wholehealthsource.org, Stefan Guinet for everything else. Um, thank you. This is, this has been a great hangout session and I uh, really appreciate having you on the show. Okay. My pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Prove It Keto OS Exogenous Ketones. Now, many of you know that when you fast for around 24 hours or you follow a ketogenic diet, your body starts to produce ketones in the form of beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. Now, we don't need to go into too much nerd speak, but what is really cool about Prove It Keto OS Exogenous Ketones is that you're able to get these same energy-producing ketone molecules in a drink form. And it's a delicious drink form that tastes like chocolate or orange dreamsicle. And these energy producing molecules improve mental clarity. They improve oxygen utilization during exercise and have a whole host of other benefits. You can get them charged with a little bit of caffeine for an extra lift if you tolerate caffeine, or you can get them without caffeine if you are sensitive to stimulants. I've also found them incredibly helpful in bridging the gap as the body transitions into a state of ketosis and making that whole shift a little bit more tolerable. So I have found them to be very, very helpful. A lot of my clients love them. Just be a little careful if you are sensitive to dairy um, starting out. But besides that, they're amazing and they're coming out with a dairy-free option very, very soon. So to learn more about them, go to biohacks.com. Prove it, P R U V I T now.com. And they have a free $14 or $15 sampler pack that you can get and see if they're a good fit for you. I use them just about every single day. And that website, one more time, is biohacks.pruvitnow.com. Mm-hmm.